Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host. We come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects to discuss the contents of Another Week Ends. But first, I had the pleasure this week of talking with Carlin Maddow. He's the author of a new book called A Path Revealed, How Hope Love and joy found us in a deep maze called Alzheimer's. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I do. Carlin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on with us. I'm glad to be here, Scott. It's uh, a, a real honor and a privilege for me to do that. I admire what you guys do on Mockingbird, have been for a good year or two. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you've written, you've written this book, A Path Revealed, how hope, love, and joy found us deep in a maze called Alzheimer's. And Correct. Yeah. So there's so much I want to say about it. But first, can I just ask you a couple unrelated questions? Sure. Your uh, beloved wife, Martha, who, I mean, uh, of blessed memory, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, she was in politics, and you covered politics and business for the Matter Report. I feel like so many of our listeners are just dialed into what's going on in the world right now. Like, as somebody who's been a student of journalism, whose the love of his life was involved in politics, like, what sense do you make of anything that's going on? <laughs> Surely, we're not going to go there, Scott. <laughs> we're going there. That's it. We're going. There. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how to make sense of it. I, I, I still am totally amazed with the election outcome. I have uh, accepted the fact that uh, Donald Trump is this country's president, and I want him to succeed magnificently. I just got to see just how his words and his actions work out, and uh, just like a lot of people do. I have a lot of friends who uh, voted for him and wanted him in, and I honor that, and I accept that. Uh, I did not. Um my wife, Martha, uh, first got into politics back in 1975, right after our first child, our son, David, was born. Uh, and she was uh, working uh, for the local uh, chapter of uh, Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign when he was elected. And she was a follower and an avid follower of Hillary Clinton for many, many years. And so I I couldn't go against her wishes this time around. So anyway, that's sort of where I am on uh, on it all. And I, I do hope uh, President Trump and his administration take good care of this country and uh, continue to make this country a good country and a great country uh, and, uh, and move us forward uh, in the world's eyes in a way that uh, our country is respected. You know, I heard Stanley Harawas, who Time Magazine said years ago, right before 9-11, he's a pacifist, so they made him America's greatest theologian like two weeks before 9-11. So that was, uh, after, you know, after 9-11, he was in less favor. But I heard him give a lecture once, and he said he was talking about the real political nature of the church. And Stanley Harawas, I remember hearing him lecture, and he said, you know, the most political thing, he has, he's a Texan, he says, the most political thing the church does. I mean, I've seen baptized people adopt mentally handicapped children. 
That's the most political reality that any Christian ever does. And when you when you've done that, you know that George Bush is full of shit. Do do you feel like you having been through the pain of losing someone through Alzheimer's? Is is there something of truth that like this is the politics stuff and the Facebook stuff? Uh, it, 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 you know, the, the pain you talk about in the book, mm-hmm. is that like, do you feel like if we attended more to our pain, we'd just be nicer and more understanding people? <laughs> well, I certainly just in terms of relating to my experience and going from, uh, uh, well, Martha, Martha was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at age 50 back in 1997. I was 52. I had a magazine going. She was she had just run for the state legislature and here in Florida and lost by twenty votes. And both of us uh, were sort of moving into um, a good time in our lives at that point. Our kids were uh, growing fairly nicely out into adulthood out of college, um, and uh, so I wasn't feeling particularly vulnerable. But I sure feel vulnerable now after having gone through 17 years of this with Martha. And when you're feeling vulnerable, you begin to understand that other people, regardless of their political views, regardless of their spiritual views, are not too far afield of where you are. Either either they are vulnerable now or you realize that they could very well be vulnerable in the blink of an eye tomorrow. And so it gives a whole different perspective on getting wrapped up in the back and forth of political dialogue and, and theological dialogue and, and who's right and who's wrong. And you begin to understand, hey, we're all in the same boat here. Yeah, the school of suffering. Uh, you, now you have a friend who is a prod, it's like your Protestant spiritual director, Reverend Lacey Harwell, who it's like uh, the Protestant, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, a club at Harvard, Atheists for Niebuhr, there probably should be a club like Protestants for Merton. So yeah. how did Merton help you and Martha through your journey? I mean, what was the significance of Thomas Merton? I started reading Merton before we ever had this shocker of diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Uh, and I um, was rather fascinated with him. I think what fascinated was not only his his um, spiritual dimension, but more so his literary mention that he, this rising young literary star, uh, sort of gave that up to step into uh, a monastic life in Gethsemane up in Kentucky. And uh, that just that just uh, intrigued me uh, in terms of why and what he was doing. And I read his uh, autobiography. Uh, I forget the name of it right now. It's not it's, coming uh, The Seven Story Mountain. Yeah, Seven Story Mountain. And uh, that intrigued me. And so I, I got into his his writings and, and the like, and I began to understand that uh, not only did he have this spiritual dimension, but uh, back, he died in the in 1968, I believe. And he was one of the most vocal and uh, fervent uh, anti-Vietnam War protesters in his own way, uh, certainly one of the early ones. Uh, that intrigued me, even though I went through ROTC and uh, and was uh, came out as a second lieutenant and the like. Um, but he also got very involved uh, and became good friends with uh, Dorothy Day, who developed the uh, Catholic Worker uh, Group and uh, very involved in social issues. So 
just his being his having the dimension of the spiritual and religion and of the war protest and of uh, the social issues uh, that all intrigued me he, he became he became i don't know if got good friends but became a correspondent with Martin Luther King back in that day and a, a story that i've read i assume that is true was that uh, he had invited uh, king to gethsemane uh, to just for R and R and just come up and relax and talk and whatever else. And King kept putting him off. And finally he, he agreed. He said, look, he, he wrote, uh, Merton and said, look, uh, I've got to have a, uh, I've got to make a trip up to Memphis. Then I will come on up and see you after that. And of course, Memphis is where King was shot and killed. And, uh, that I always wonder what would have come out of that conversation that the two men might've had there in Gethsemane. You talk in the book about um, about the doctor who gave you the diagnosis, and you said he would be a good stand-in for Mister Spock. Now I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so that came across like a compliment on one level. But but I mean, it, it sounded like it, there was a cold, hard, awful experience, <laughs> like when he shared the diagnosis. There, I was not talking about Martha's neurologist that we had this was an associate of his but uh, i mean the thing uh, the thing about my book just to make real clear is alzheimer's is not the focus of the book of our story it it, it started off that way and was that way for a good while but uh, uh, alzheimer's is the context of our story the focus of our story is the spiritual odyssey that we found ourselves on um Back to Lacey Harwell, he had um, sent us up to visit uh, a good friend of his, a sister with the sisters of Loretta, um, and uh, he encouraged us to go. Martha was diagnosed in September of 1997, and we arranged to visit with her for a week uh, in October of 1997. Uh, since I had this budding interest in Thomas Merton, and Gethsemane was about 25 miles away, um, I asked Sister uh, Elaine about this, and she directed us. She told us how to get there and said she suggested we go to their Compline service, the last service of the evening, and uh, and then she uh, directed us to uh, one of the monks who g gave a little homily at the end of each of those services and uh, by the name of Father Matthew Kelty. And she said, well, you know, uh, Father Matthew Kelty was uh, Thomas Merton's confessor back in the day, uh, who Thomas Merton spent time confessing with and talking with and the like. Gosh, oh, to be a fly in the wall in that confessional. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we went and heard him, and I, after hearing him for, he, he talked for about 10 minutes. He read, he, he quoted poetry, he quoted scripture, he quoted experiences from his life. And as he walked out the door, I just didn't know whether to laugh or cry when I heard him. And, uh, and I didn't know how Martha took to him. So as, as we were driving back, uh, I said, well, how'd you like Father Matthew County? She said, I want to go back tomorrow night. And that surprised me. Mm. And so, why we were you did. surprised? Well, I just I, I I wasn't sure how Martha was reacting to people. But you're a journalist. I mean, so you you're good at like you read people. So why did she surprise you in that moment? What was what kind of uh, lens did you have that like you were surprised that she was so intrigued? As a journalist, I read people who I were not emotionally involved with. I, I could 
draw my own conclusions. I was deeply emotionally involved, not only in Martha, but in this crisis that was coming on as fast. And so there's just a big distinction there, Scott. First off, Martha did not want to tell anybody about this diagnosis. And and Lacey was the only person that we talked with, even our kids, her family, and, and the like. So she was very sensitive about who was she was getting connected with. She it took her a little while to warm up to Sister Elaine, but she ultimately did. But she just, she took to uh, Father Matthew instantly, obviously. So when we went back the next night to go to the Compline service and then to hear him, um, after he finished again, he, he walked off the stage, stage left, and then walked in behind us. As soon as he was walking behind us, Martha just bolted from her seat and went right straight up to him. And um, and they talked for a couple of minutes, and she came back and sat down with me, and I asked her, I said, what's that about? And she sort of looked at me with a smile on her face and says, he wants to see me tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And I told him about my Alzheimer's. She hadn't told anybody else but Lacey. And, of course, Sister Lane knew about it. Is uh, he still but, alive? Is, is no, there... he died uh, uh, two or three years ago. What was your relationship with, with him like after you lost your, your beloved wife? I mean, did you continue talking with him? No, we did. Uh, no, it, it, um, I, uh, a year or two later, I was fortunate to be able to get a week off and I went back to Gethsemane. And uh, ironically, I was able to spend a week in Thomas Merton's cabin. You talk about that in the book. Yeah, which was very meaningful to me. Uh, I mean, one of the uh, I, 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 the more I read of Father Matthew and the little bit we corresponded and talked, uh, I just I began to call him the monk of mercy. Uh, he just was all into forgiveness and and to letting your resentments go. That's probably the word Merton needed to hear because Merton was not a monk of mercy to himself, especially. I mean, he. He, he's a, Martin was a tortured soul. Father Matthew, I, I just never heard anybody go that way that deep. Uh, I, I didn't read it that much when I was reading Martin, um, uh, but uh, he just, he really struck a chord. And when I was, when I was there at the cabin, I just went through some serious forgiveness issues and did forgive um, and shared these with him. And I, I, I just, after I'd spent a, I was there for a week and these didn't really come to a head until my last day there, a Friday. And uh, after it was over uh, time uh, going through this kind of forgiveness, um, I said, I, I've got to go talk to Father Matthew if I can see him. I, I just need somebody to sort of bless this time. Did you ever feel like you needed to forgive God? Oh, often. Hmm. I mean, I had felt like I had to forgive myself. I mean, uh, my book came out this last October. I started a blog about a year before that. And here are some of the titles, the titles of some of my very first posts on that, that was sort of dealing with uh, uh, the spiritual issues that were arising out of this whole crisis. Uh, I mean, uh, one, I won't go through them all, but just give two or three a, a spiritual journey doesn't require much. Either you go all in or you stay out. I mean, this is a takeaway that I really drew from from our odyssey. But isn't that a dep- it really? I mean, uh, like, 
Because nobody is all in or stay. Aren't we always just a mess in the middle? Like, I feel like every spiritual journey, we convince ourselves we're all in. I'm talking talking about the intent. Yeah, okay. I like that. I'm not talking about the actuality. Yes, we're all in sort of a, a messy middle, but it depends on where our heart and head really want to aim. Uh, uh, another uh, takeaway that I had was uh, either I focus on my problems or I focus on God. I really can't do both at the same time. Um, another one was, am I too busy and important to just be quiet? Um, I'm not busy or important, and I have a very difficult time being quiet. Well... <laughs> I'm not, I, I am, I was pretty busy back in those days. Important, that was in the eye of beholder, my eyes. And I, we all are pretty important in our own eyes, I think. Um, but anyway, um, then another one, just, I guess the best advice I ever had came in the first grade. Stop, look, listen. We all mm. had that advice. Yeah. And uh, just the last one I give is just, God loves me. God loves me not. Could this be the most important lesson I'll ever learn in my life? And uh, I still struggle with that, whether I am loved fully or not by God. And and I, I've certainly vented my share with God <coughs> and challenged him. Uh, so back to your question, have I had to ask for forgiveness from God? Yeah, I've had to do it because of my relation to other people with him. And for myself. But did you ever have to forgive God? Did you ever have to say, like, hey, God, why would you do this? You're, you must be a vindictive SOB. To give a woman who's by all, you know, journalistic standards, like, you know, I don't know her, but reading you, I believe you. I mean, like, she's, this is the love of your life. And, like, did you ever feel like, God, like, screw you. You snuffed out this cat. You sang in Isaiah. You're not going to, like, put out a smoldering wick. But, you know. Why? Uh, you may be a little bolder with God than I was. <laughs> I was a little scared of God, so I didn't want to let my feelings out. I let them all, let them hang all the way out. Maybe like that. I would, I would tell you that uh, rather than being totally angry with God, I was more scared of God and more scared for our future. What scared you most? Like, what was the scariest thing? Well, just where was this uh, in in relation to Martha and me? Where was this going with our with with Martha? Uh, I mean, I'd read enough uh, I'd read enough books by that point uh, to to know that it was an, an ugly picture, and uh, I didn't know what was going to be happening to our family um, in terms of our three children and their futures and how they were reacting. Uh, to all and would be reacting to all this, uh, but in relation, relation to God, I, I, I grew up. Uh, my religious background was more fundamentalist than anything. Well, it seems like you're putting the fun back in fundamentalism because you write very well. Well, I, I, I wouldn't describe myself fundamentalist at this point, but all I'm saying is I did not hear much about God loves me. And I, it, it certainly didn't experience it any growing up, and it, I didn't experience it much of my life until I, we got into this whole odyssey here, and just beginning to understand that I, uh, I am truly loved regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my feelings, regardless, and then uh, just to let that love begin to transform who I am and take me where I need to go. 
How did like this experience shape your thinking about the afterlife? Because it sounds like you grew up in a community that was very certain about the afterlife. So, what, what, how did that shape your view about the afterlife, and how do you think about it now? I think about the afterlife a lot less now than I did then. I thought being, quote, saved meant I could get to heaven. Being saved to me now means I am being made whole. I am being brought into God's oneness. I am being brought into God's love, his life, and being drawn into that and let it, that being be expressed through me. I just, uh, the afterlife will take care of itself. It, I, I'm, the issues I'm dealing with right now are sort of here and now with uh, getting through today. Uh, and when, we, when Martha was still alive, she died back in June of 2014. Just uh, getting through the day then, um, and how how she and I and our family could be made whole and kept whole and kept going forward. What do the struggles today look like? Like what what makes you anxious? What's your joy? Like what like what like what are the present places of anxiety and struggle? What are the present places of like peace and hope? Starting with the joy, uh, certainly seeing Martha reflected in our five grandkids and seeing different traits of Martha being reflected in our five grandkids who range in age from two to 10 right now. Uh, that, that, that's a great joy. Uh, another joy is just seeing how our three children, uh, act with each other. Uh, I would say that they really are taking care of each other's back a lot more than they might have been had we not gone through this experience with Martha. Uh, so that's, uh, I, I look at that and just consider that uh, a great joy. Uh, another uh, time of joy is just when I'm able to feel uh, the divine love just sort of moving and flowing through me. But there are, there are times that um, I just don't feel it. And I'm sort of getting wrapped up in some anxiety in terms of my own health issues or or imagined health issues and um i mean one of the um uh, abiding kinds of things that keeps going through my mind my mother died from cancer my father died from cancer my sister died from cancer and i'm thinking whenever i hear somebody's got cancer it just sort of whacks me and i've really got to deal with that in my mind and heart in terms of not letting not being caught up in that uh so those are those are some of the joys and uh, some of the real concerns. Have you found love again? I mean, like, like, do you think you'll remarry? I mean, uh, I I have no idea on that. I haven't. Uh, would you like to? <clears throat> would you like to remarry? I mean, would you like to be married again? Yeah, find a, find the right person. Find the right, right woman. Yeah, we've got a lot of eligible bachelorettes out there. So Carlin Meadow <laughs> is a journalist. <laughs> He's, you know, I, now don't let no, the cancer DNA scare you. Come on, friend, <laughs> bachelorettes, email me at Scott Jones at ember.com. And you could also go to carlinmaddo.com. There's some lovely photos. He's, he's a good looking guy with a lot of depth and, and who could prove he could commit. So. Hey, 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 this is no love boat show, Scott. So let's well, it could be. Why could it, it could be. be. You know, yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah. yeah. Carlin, thank you. You know, you say that in your book, you talk about how 
all you've known is journalism and writing. And so like at some point you had to just write the pain, uh, which man, I mean, that sounds gut-wrenching. What are you writing now? Well, the main, the main thing I'm doing is, I, I'm, uh, is a, a blog that I'm working on. And I'm just uh, at the same time uh, helping uh, move the word out on the book. I mean, it's just been out now a little over three months. And um, so I, I'm, those are, that's my focus on, on both those fronts. It's just uh, like I have a working on a post right now about a doctor friend of mine who I haven't crossed paths with in 50 years who is uh, having to be a caregiver for his wife uh, with uh, uh, mild cognitive um, uh, disease. And um, so anyway, I just have doing, doing, I'm not writing a book uh, yet. I'm not ready to write another book yet. I mean, I don't know quite how I could write a book like I certainly can't write a book like this again, but uh, there may be another book in me. We'll have to see. Yeah, most people couldn't write a book like this. I mean, the prose is elegant and the sentiment is is real. And I mean, that's all you can ask for in a book. Uh, the, the, the raw data for this book came from a journal that I started keeping almost immediately. Yeah, you mentioned the book, and you excerpt like some some parts of the journal, which is nice because right. you, you kind of let people in on your creative process, which I think right. Uh, right. for writers, this is another thing like, and it seems like so clinical to say something like this about a book that's born out of so much of your pain, but it's a book that like, if, if you're looking to learn how to write, uh, this is a great book in, in the sense of you kind of let people into the creative process, which writers don't always do. I mean, I... Uh, started the journal uh, right when Martha was diagnosed. I didn't do it for spiritual reasons, quote, unquote. Uh, I did it just to survive. I had so much information coming at me. Uh, I stopped the journal when Martha moved into a nursing home about a decade later, and that was about after 14 volumes. And I, I just didn't crack it open for a good five or six years. And when I decided, well, I felt I just felt uh, an urge that I just needed to do a book on this whole process. And Lacey Harwell had really encouraged me early on. Uh, and a couple of other folks did as well, but I just had to wait till the right time. Just when I cracked open that journal, I, I, I wasn't sure I could put this together. It was just the, the, the raw feelings that were coming out of rereading some of this stuff it was really tough. I mean, you mentioned your editor in the book, but like, I think on some level, you were the first level editor because you were coming to your own prose. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on with me. And, you know, we'll have you back on just to talk about creative writing or something. Like okay. That. Uh, because you're a, you're a fascinating guest in person. Well, then I, 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 I wrote it and I wrote chapters and I found an editor who would go through it with me chapter by chapter. And uh, my intention was to uh, publish this book myself. I just didn't think, I thought it would take too long to find a publisher and an agent and the like. And uh, very fortunate to find uh, Paraclete Press out of Cape Cod. If you have not read this book, listeners, Carlin Maddow, A Path Revealed, How Hope, Love, and Joy Found Us Deep in a Maze Called Alzheimer's. Carlin, thanks for writing this and thanks for spending time with us. Thank you very much, Scott. Look forward to uh, talking with you again. My head and I cry. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, 
how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. Good day to you both. And by both, I mean we lost the dead weight. The piano is off our backs. David Saul <laughs> is not with us. There's no connection to headquarters. But we do have... Back for the second time in about as many weeks, Lindy Jones returning after critical acclaim on her first appearance in the roundtable. Welcome back. And you're actually in the bunker with me. This is very... Yes, it's very exciting. Usually only Bill Bohr shares this intimate space with me, but... Ooh. Right now. (laughs) And of course, (laughs) as always, we have Sarah Condon from Houston. Sarah, how are you? Good. Good. It's like a regular women's march here on the Mockingcast. Get out the pink hats, the pink over. hats. That's right, get out the pink hats. Don't call them by the name they call them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, well, it's, before we get started, I mean, there's some housekeeping stuff for Mockingbird, exciting announcements, but also, do you want to clarify shoe sizes and weights now that we have you both together? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want to talk about weight. <laughs> shoe size, sure. <laughs> weight. Sizes, uh, no. Yeah. Height, no. <laughs> How about we talk about your shoe size? Nine and a half. Nine and a half. I I, I have a lovely nine and a half. I have a lovely nine and a half. I I have a I have a thirty-two inch waist and and third or just under thirty-two inch and a forty-two inch uh, jacket size, which is actually the athletic type. If you're ten inches or more above, Mm. you're the you're the the athletic type. So what more? more, Let's talk more about my dimensions. What else? In case you're wondering, listeners, I I still own and wear several pairs of maternity pants. Like <laughs> Creature comforts, baby. It's the stretchy waistband. <laughs> uh, other than okay, now that we've, now that we've talked enough about our own. Now that we've body shamed, we body shamed one another. I, I felt body, I felt body praised by by myself, but still, mm-hmm. my body's tremendous. I've got a tremendous body. It's really the best. I mean, it's a wonderful body. It's it's lovely, uh, huge. So very excited. The food and drink issue of the Mockingbird. Our magazine, our our quarterly print magazine, is available. You can order it. It's the it's it's coming out. I mean, it's it's coming in from the printers. Uh, you can see the table of contents online. So it will be for subscribers. It will be there soon in your mailboxes. And for those of you who just want to start your subscription, now is a great time. I believe you wrote an article for that. I did write an article for that. I did. You are quite right. Nice. As did David Peterson. As did, and there's and actually also we have an interview with. It's actually an interview I did, so part of it's transcribed. But we will have the whole the whole interview on the podcast for the magazine with Helen Zoe Vate, who wrote a book called Modern Food, Moral Food, Self Control, Science, and the Rise of Modern American Eating in the Early 20th Century. Great book, and she's a lovely person. So look for that interview in print and audio form. I've heard part of the interview. It was great. She's wonderful. Lovely, lovely person. For her uh, dissertation, she read, she went through like 300,000, why, what, am I too loud? Yeah. She went through something like 300,000 handwritten letters to the FDA of the time. I think Herbert Hoover was the administrator or something. I forget who was the administrator, but I was just like, this is just amazing. I mean, that you would, you would, you know, go through all that primary source. Very interesting. So there you go. Look for the magazine. And now... Any other things that we should talk about? We body shamed. We've talked about the magazine. We've body extolled. <laughs> the, conference the conference is coming up. Tenth conference ever. And also, Ember Tyler, Mockingbird yeah, Tyler. That's coming yeah. up in February. So 
Yeah, twenty fourth and twenty fifth. Sarah and I will be there. So def- Paul's all. Will Paul's be there. all will be there. David's all will be there. And it will be a. It'll be a great time. And I'll get to drive across Texas with you again, Sarah. I did it once, and yeah, looking forward to do it again. Do it I got again. a tremendous. Yeah, my car smells really weird right now, and I keep wondering. Like, I don't know if you're the kind of person that can't handle weird smells. We're gonna go. We're gonna go right to the is. detailers. <laughs> <laughs> is it sour milk? I don't. My kid jumped out a bag of chips like a week ago. I can't. I don't think that's it. But I'm, maybe they got wet. I don't know. Can you smell it, baby? Can you smell it, Can you smell it, baby? Can you smell it, folk? Doesn't make you feel good. Well, on the note of terrible smells that are undetectable, we our first piece here from. The Weekender is from The Guardian, and it's by a guy named John Harris. It's entitled, They Call It Fun, But the Digital Giants Are Turning Workers Into Robots. I could be a voiceover bum, person. Bum, bum. Like I, That's like the Fox News, Fox News voiceover, like, are liberals destroying America? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> they are. Maybe they are. That's, you know, I like the voiceover voice. So this is uh, the, the, great, the opening line of this is, secrets are lies, sharing is caring. Privacy is theft. So run the three Orwellian aphorisms at the heart of Dave Eggers' 2013 novel, The Circle, whose film version is coming out, which will be starring Emma Watson and Tom Hanks, and will come to cinemas this spring. And basically, it's, it's like an omnipotent version. It tells the story of an omnipotent version, hybrid kind of corporation of Google, Twitter, and Facebook. And it's asking exacting questions about their shared vision of the future. And basically, it, it it's 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 you know there's this in the in the novel apparently there's this thing called party rank, uh, participation rank, party rank for short. And they say, oh, it's just for fun, but basically, it's monitoring every aspect of your employees' lives, and you're really incentivized to participate in it. And you're kind of you're algorithmically monitored and rated and measured in in all sorts of ways. And so and the idea is like you kind of have to opt into this, I suppose, to kind of advance in the corporation. And I mean, it seems dystopian. And yet, you know, there, there's a piece, there's a section later in the piece, I think it's talking about how the NHS is trying to get people to wear these kind of Fitbit things to monitor all these things in your health. And, I, and I've heard, I heard a futures talk a few years ago saying that like, it's not going to be long before nanotechnology in, in our socks and stuff like that is going to be mandated for you to be insured so they know like what's going on and you know they'll say oh i'm sorry mr jones um you can't catch this flight because our nanotechnology is saying your blood pressure is a little high you catch the next one we'll have to give you an aspirin you know like i mean these kind of monitoring of our lives is seems like completely incessant and insidious that was back to the voiceover incessant and insidious (laughs) so is facebook taking over our lives or not Lindy, Sarah, you be the judge. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this stuff is everywhere, right? We're, uh, we won't recognize the world in 50 years. I mean, I, I, you know, my grandmother's still alive. She's in her nineties. And when I talk to her, she's so astonished, which I can't even imagine. Just so astonished by the world. And I feel like, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty much well on our way. But the whole time I was reading this, I kept thinking of, um, you know, there are all these pictures of, of people protesting right now. And my favorite sign I saw was somebody had a sign up that says, uh, 
something like, I don't like this episode of Black Mirror. Have you guys watched that show? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's like, so that's what all I was thinking of is I was reading this. I don't like this episode of Black Mirror. So, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty great protest, though. Yeah, right? <laughs> Whoever wrote that, if you're, out, if you're out there and you listen or somebody tweet out, because we would like to have you on the show. Because, well, I mean, maybe. We're assuming, we're we're banking we're banking that they're as creative and dynamic and interesting as that sign, but yeah. it's at least a possibility. Is that person as dynamic and as interesting as their protest <laughs> sign? You be the judge. I think what was cool about this article was that where I work at a corporation and I have a wellness program where I have to fill out the little wellness thing every year, and. And I get a discount on my health insurance if I do it. And then I have goals. And if I meet them, I get the, the other discount. And then my badge, which opens all the doors at work, has a little tracker in it. So everyone knows where I am at all what? times. And the more you like read that stuff, you're like, I could see like if I was really like a paranoid person or not even a paranoid person, just a person that overthinks what, what I'm wearing on my badge at work. Yeah. It's a, it, I don't know. It's a great premise for a film. Yeah. We're all for like. Sure overly uh, privacy is becoming less and less of a reality unless you live in the woods and you don't have a credit card <laughs> i'm not paranoid but yeah but, th- but i know those people and they have kids or kids don't have social security numbers it gets complicated it get, yeah know? then your life is just that's the problem you trade in a little bit of your privacy for the security that society offers and maybe it's a good trade maybe it's not you be the judge yeah, I want to be monitored. When people are monitoring, it makes me feel like they care. Are they noticing me? Like I, I monitor me all the time. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, pay attention to me, please. It's like I like internet trolls. I never get it. like Sarah. You have like what more trolls than right? Like, oh I'm like, God. why don't I get trolls? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> Any publicity is good publicity. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Uh... But I mean, I do think the insidious part of it is is that it it's sort of like if uh, Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols it's also probably the exacting self-criticizing power of the law and also like sort of self-righteous nature beating other people up with it it's like new metrics create new ways like judge other people berate yourself like so it's like way oh my gosh there's ways to evaluate (laughs) and shame myself i never even thought about oh yeah create all these new metrics that like you know and then you go in the trap of well i mean I might only have a six score on the, on the, uh, you know, on, on the whatever, you know, human, what is it? What, there's this great phrase. If they say, what's the phrase at the end? They said, oh, if you ever hear the term people analytics, worry. That's right. It's like, well, my people analytics score might only be a 5.3, but I mean, they're definitely a 4.1. So, I mean, right. you know, I'm in the meaty part of the curve. You know, I mean, this, it just leads to that kind of, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same and the beat goes on. <laughs> every single day and every word you say every game you play every night you stay I'll be watching you so next we have a piece from the Atlantic which is called Everybody's in a Bubble and that's a problem in politics as well as business people are shaped by who they see and who they don't. And the, I love the article. One of the most useless uh, political observations since the election is that liberal elites live in, in bubbles. It's useless not because it's wrong. They often do, but because it's like saying liberals elites live in the biosphere. You know, they're saying like that. The, this is a, I mean, it's almost a truism 
But then it just like, kind of looks at the, how, it, it, what is the term? Hom- homophile, homophily. We like sameness. And so in general. Oh, I didn't know how to say that word. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like you're a, like if you're an Anglophile, you like British people. Oh, or got a, it. Or a Francophile. Yeah, you're yeah, you're annoying if you're an Anglophile. Right, okay, keep you're going. A if you're a, <laughs> if you're a Scotophile, you're, you're a fan of me. Good taste. Okay, it's keep going. It's a homophily. <laughs> it's a homophily. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean, so that and the article goes on to kind of ask uh, to look at the nature of that, and then how it kind of shapes our culture that we all live in bubbles. And although it is kind of a natural, uh, it is a natural sort of f- facet or component to the human condition. And they sort of like to talk about how this plays out and how it shapes all the realities of our lives. So, Sarah, Lindy, what bubbles do you live in, and why? Bubbles good or bubbles bad? <laughs> When we lived in New York, um, we wanted to do something that normal people our age did. So Josh joined a kickball league. And, um, That's a dangerous... In his cargo shorts? Would he wear his cargo shorts to the kickball game? I'm sure he was in his cargo shorts, yes. And um, I am not athletic at all and was actually pregnant with our son. And so I didn't play, but I, I, I would sit out there and watch. And the whole thing, and you guys probably know this, is like the happy hour afterwards is like the whole point. Like you all get to, so we, he like signed up for this big league in Westchester County and we got put on this team actually like full of teachers and, um, which was interesting, but, uh, we would get to the bar afterwards and we would not know how to communicate with other people our age. It was like such a disturbing phenomenon because, you know, especially in our church up there and we hadn't had kids yet. So we were in this place of like, we didn't really have a lot of people our age that we knew and we're both in church. Like neither of us have a secular job where we know people our age in the secular world. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're in, I mean, it was the first time I was like, we're in such a bubble. Like we sat and we only went to happy hour once because we didn't know how to talk to people. It was like such a weirdo moment for us. So yeah, that's my bubble, man. If you guys ever need help with church. that, I'm a man of the people. Are you? I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like a, a tribune for the plebeians, so I feel like I'm, I'm good. I also feel like you're really lucky because you're married to Lindy, and she oh. doesn't Thank work you. in church. It helps. Like true. for lots of reasons, you're lucky, but like it keeps you. you know, I, like, I've never, I've a, never been somebody that like I, I always kind of like enveloped by that. Yeah, I never. I mean, I live in my own yeah. uh, other bubbles, but I, I've never. I've always kind of like I've, I, I always like being outside of church circles with people. I feel what was interesting about this article though is that they weren't saying the bubble was necessarily bad it's just like you're kind of your comfort where you're comfortable like you want to yeah. go to you know it's bad in the sense that you end up going to school with the same socioeconomic people of your you know level instead of mixing and maybe you're always with one race instead of mixing and they were talking about white executives hiring other white executives to manage these venture capitalist funds and like it just mm-hmm. perpetuates it but on the one hand like your bubble is like i mean when am i most comfortable getting drinks after work it's probably with people that i also work in healthcare we can say things that nobody sure. else might understand and like you can kind of relax a little bit you don't have to qualify what you're saying so, like, in one sense, the bubble is really nice, and in the other sense, it just perpetuates more segregation. Maybe I'm just special, because I really, I like talking with people that don't do what I do. I like to learn about what they do. I like to have, like, a different, I like to be out of the, out of the kind of, I mean, I, you know, I, I do have, I also do have the athletic Contortion. I, I also have the like athletic it. contortion. Wait, no, no, I'm no. Just, I'm like, I'm, I, feel so, I feel so good about myself right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're misinterpreting what I'm saying. 
I enjoy talking to people from all bubbles. But sometimes when you want to relax at the end of the day, your bubble is nice. Yeah, you don't have to explain. I mean, there's nothing like when we have a like a, a dinner table full of priests. Like nobody has to explain what a vestry meeting is. Nobody has, you know, like we all speak the same language. Like, and part of me is like, is this so different from the way humanity's always functioned? No, I don't. You it's know, very tribal. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I think though, you know what? I mean, the disturbing part of it though is some of the stats about like ninety percent of the venture capital kinds of things. Like, so it, it, where I think it becomes at least. Problem a little problematic in the sense of you look at like where like you talk about the old boys club you might like venture capital or hedge funds yeah it, sure. it becomes it, it kind of becomes the concentration of money power sure maybe kind of you know weird sort of wolf on wall street testosterone that kind of thing all yeah I mean but that's still not new I mean I totally agree with you but it's like people were just doing it in like castles you know. On what's that show on HBO that I can't watch? It's super violent. <laughs> Game, Game of, of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Now I see why. Game of Thrones. Now I see why I had a tough time with the young people at the happy hour. Exactly. <laughs> I'm such an elderly woman. What's Always have the been. Name? <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they kids are wa- kids are watching it. Uh, the uh, <laughs> there is a blonde. I'm literally queen. drinking seltzer. Like that's where I am. Right really now. I'm so addicted to seltzer right now. So. Yes. So addicted. You're like it's like you're like an old woman now. Yeah, no, I am. Neil, every every year is how could another you do year this? Plus the age I really should be. I've been old since I was three years old, so don't feel bad. Have yeah. I yeah. I was like sixty when I was three. You're yeah. We are, as G.K. Chesterton says, we are as young as our dreams and as old as our cynicism, which is why probably I have the Peter Pan oh kind gosh, of. Is that a nice oh, way of oh. saying Sarah and I are yeah. cynical? Yeah, exactly. I'm so old. I have a Peter Pan true. sort of quality to me. That oh, sort of... gosh. Wow. So let's move on <laughs> to. Moving let's along. talk about that prison video. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> <laughs> Living the Bible, baby. Your Bible's not reality. You've got to have. <laughs> well, yeah, there's an essay. The last piece is by David Brooks, op-ed columnist for the New York Times and celebrated columnist. And he wrote this really interesting piece called The Lord of Misrule. And he opens up talking about how what was compelling about David is when he danced and how he's overcome by gratitude to God, strips down to his linens. This is, again, like what someone of the youthful spirit like me does. I do this around the house sometimes. I strip down and dance with love and joy, spilling beyond the boundaries of normal decorum. That's why I do it in the house. But then he talks about his wife, Michal, who's a cynic, of course. The daughter of King Saul was repulsed by his behavior, especially because he was doing it in front of the commoners. She snarked at him when he got home for exposing himself in front of the servants, slave girls like some scurrious fellows. And then he talks about how the early Christian Communities seem to have worshipped the way David did, with this ecstatic dancing and communal joy. I love this term. He quotes Derek on uh, collective effervescence. I, I love that term. Uh, and I, this, I, don't, I do not know this book. He quotes Dancing in the Streets by Barbara uh, Einreich. Argues in the first centuries of Christianity, worship of Jesus overlapped with worship of Dionysus, the Greek god of revelry. And then she uh, talks about how basically Gregory of Nazianzus in the fourth century says, let us sing hymns instead of striking drums, have psalms instead of frivolous music and song, modesty instead of laughter, wise contemplation instead of intoxication, serious, seriousness instead of delirium. And he talks about how 
in the medieval that how this tradition evolves well into the medieval period and then how what evolves alongside of it is the practice of carnival and carnival is sort of to celebrate the fool and and, and this and, and this ribaldry and sort of you know getting back to this bacchanalian spirit of life and you know less inhibited and feeling unrestrained so and then he talks about a little bit about how the current political scene seems like like the whole thing is going carnival and and maybe that's because we we have a sort of censorious culture a shaming culture a pc culture you know safe spaces like all these things that like basically it need it like these the carnival celebration in even our political discourse he thinks maybe is because of this sort of repression everywhere else so there we go do you guys feel repressed do you need to dance right now we could have a dance party like invisibilia oh. I have to tell you the first couple of paragraphs of this, I was like, I am team Michal because <laughs> I do not all this when she and she was like doing all this stuff about guessing about what Christians danced around wildly, which I've never heard that before. Maybe it's true, but I'm really hoping it's not because that is not my style. Like he really kind of it was I mean, I, I saw where Mr. David Brooks was headed, but I was a little unsure at the beginning. Um, and, uh, and then I'm like, wait, is he blaming like our lack of like joy in Christian worship on, I mean, it was just sort of an interesting tie in, right. That like, that we have less, you know, loudness or, or revelry or whatever, um, carnival in, in those spaces. And so we're seeing it in our public sphere. I don't know. I mean, what I liked that he said at the end was, look, I'm going to write about this president politically but i'm not gonna write basically reactively about him like in terms of like you know what he puts up on twitter or whatever which it seems like those two things are overlapping already but um <clears throat> i appreciated that I, and, and i appreciated it actually it's been interesting to me i don't know if you guys have seen this i'm on facebook a ton and have felt more and more um in the past few days like i just wanted to be off of it altogether and i have seen three or four friends of mine who use it like the same way I use it, which is a lot church people who are, have all pulled off. And so um, just because it, I don't know, it, it does, it does feel like what Brooks was writing about. Like we're sort of celebrating the fool in some ways. But Bernie Sanders. I, I heard a guy imitating Bernie Sanders on Howard Stern. He said, I did well in many demographics. For instance, I got 92% of yoga instructors that deactivated their Facebook accounts for political reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem, too, is there's no differentiation between carnival and playing the fool and, like, seriousness. Like, I think there's, like, this group on the internet that just wants everything to be serious. So you could post mm. something very lighthearted and then you'll get a comment, well, why would you do that with your child? That's just a bad thing to do. Right, right, or, right. Or why would Donald Trump say that? That's not true. And, you, I mean, sure, he's the president. There's, like, an accountability of seriousness, but this is, like, a different kind of president. And I think his point is really interesting that, like, maybe we should approach what he says in a different light. Not so much that, like, everything he says is, like, literal, but more, like, maybe some of the things he's saying are trying to spark conversation about a topic that he finds frustrating. Yeah. That's so interesting. Like, are we more, like, I mean, I guess the answer is yes, but, like, are we more serious? Like, are we are we less able to, I mean, because everyone has an opinion now, right? And everyone's opinion is the right opinion. And so, like, are we, le are we less able to even engage in... in 
in something, this concept of carnival or play or whatever it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just know. so interesting. Like the, the things, the little petty things the media and Trump are arguing about. Like when there's bigger things happening that he's doing, like actual policy things that are a lot more important mm-hmm. than like crowd sizes and, you know, mm-hmm. pictures mm-hmm. from the front of the stage versus pictures from the back of the stage. And it's like mm-hmm. this whole mm-hmm. embedded argument is going on and on and on. And, and it's just everyone wants to be literal. Everyone wants to be right. Everyone wants the facts. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes, mm-hmm. it, I'm not saying the facts are flexible. I'm just saying sometimes it's like Trump felt like a lot of people showed up for him and he felt good about it. Like, why can't we just let the guy enjoy his day? <laughs> Right. Why do we have to compare right. it to Obama to begin with? I don't even understand. Right. And now we're at this petty argument that's been going on forever. I'm kind of tired of it. I just want to talk about real yeah. stuff in the news. Like that's not even it's real. Like when my kids, it's like when my kids argue in the back seat, <laughs> and my two year old daughter will be like, "I'm gonna play pink soccer," and then my six year old son's like, "There's no such thing as pink soccer," and I'm like, "Just let her be too. Like if she wants to make up pink soccer as a thing, it's a thing. Just let her have it. I have it. played pink soccer. Okay, it's a thing. <laughs> it's, a it's a relative truth or whatever. An fact. alternative fact. An alternative fact. Yeah, Brooks says this about the carnival thing. So I think it's interesting. The carnivals were partly a way to blow off steam, but in hard times, they served as occasions for genuine populist revival, revolts. In 1511, a carnival in, in Eudine, Italy, turned into a riot. It led to the murder of 50 nobles and the sacking of more than 20 palaces. Carnival culture was raw, lascivious, and disgraceful, and it elevated a certain social type, the fool. There were many different kinds of fools. Holy fools, hapless fools, vicious fools. Fools were rude and frequently unabashed liars. They were willing to make idiots of themselves. The point of the fool was not to be admirable in himself, but to be the class clown who had the guts to talk back to the teacher. People enjoyed carnival culture, the feast of fools, as a way to whack at the status quo. He says, you know, you can see where I'm going with this. We live in a time of wide social inequality. The intellectual straitjackets have getting tighter. Universities become modern cathedrals where social hierarchies are, are defined and reinforced. And we're living with exactly the kinds of injustices that lead to carnival culture, and we're, we've crowned a fool king. Uh, Donald Trump exists on two levels, the presidential level and the fool level. On one level, he makes personal other decisions. On the other, he tweets. And he talks about how his tweets are classic fool behavior. They're raw, ridiculous, frequently self-destructive. So it's interesting, because and, and David Brooks is not a, a Trump fan. Uh, he, I mean, he's made that. I'm not making an editorial judgment. I mean, he's been right. very clear about that. Uh, but yeah. he... But, um, I was impressed at his ability to see, to describe, like, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting, too, as I was thinking about this, is like, you know, there's a sense in which the apostle Paul celebrates being a fool for Christ. And it, it, this, it, this sense of being a fool, like, being able to uh, make a, be, be a fool for, in the face of the worldly judgments and norms that cause us to take ourselves with the utmost seriousness and the most uh, self-condemning and self-censoring and self-righteous ways. I mean, so it, it's interesting that like maybe Christians should be more foolish, not less, but with a different animating spirit of the foolishness or something along those lines. And then when we worship a God that was willing to be a fool for us, which is, is very, a very powerful reality. All right. At, at the risk of sounding foolish, Let's just pull the plug on this conversation now. It's been lovely. <laughs> it's been real. Yes, we're not talking about prison. Huh? It's been no. It, <laughs> it's been real, and it's been fun. And it's actually been real fun. Thank you, ladies. I never awesome. get to say thank you, ladies. Mm. 
<laughs> we both did the same. <laughs> and everybody have a have a great weekend. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson and Dustin Kuhn. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.